Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Welcome, welcome. Welcome to the news. Uh, we have done an unusual thing for the news. I mean, it's not unusual for people to read a book, people to read books. I've heard that, that the yep. people read books and they read Stephen King books probably more than they read any other kind of book. So it's not that unusual. But usually on the news, it's we're talking about uh, television, movies, music, you know, because books take a long time to read. So, uh, but we did read a book, and I'm going to stop uh, bragging about it like it was something special. Uh, here in the studio with me, uh, Chris Grasso uh, writes for Fangoria and Revolver Magazine. Uh, he's the author of three books and host of the Indie Spiritualist Podcast. Uh, Rich Holland is a principal, is principal at CoLab, founder of Free Center and commissioner on cultural affairs for the city of Hartford. Uh, Julia Pastel is a founding member of CT Improv, and it doesn't say this here. Do you still host uh, co-host Literary Disco? Yes, I do. I think that's relevant because we're talking about a book, and isn't yeah. uh, Literary Disco, isn't it just about books? That's right. Yes, it is. Okay, then. Uh, so anyway, the book is to come. We're going to begin with a couple of other topics here. We were given a list of the uh, that appeared in the Washington Post. Um, it is a purports to be a list of the 20 defining comedy sketches of the past 20 years. Uh, and it includes, well, why don't we just give an example of something that it includes. Most of you will be familiar with this first one. That, you know, that, that, it doesn't work for me. I gotta have more cowbell. <laughs> don't blow this forest, Gene! Could be, could be so selfish, Gene. Can I just say one thing? Say it, baby, just say it. I'm staring here, staring at rock legend Bruce Dickinson. The cock in a walk, baby. And if Bruce Dickinson wants more cowbell, we should probably give him more cowbell. Say it, baby. And Bobby, you are right, I am being selfish. But the last time I checked, we don't have a whole lot of songs that feature the cowbell. I gotta have more cowbell, baby. And I'd be doing myself a disservice and every member of this band if I didn't perform the hell out of this. Guess what? I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell. Thank you, Bruce. So this list, that, of course, is famous Saturday Night Live sketch. You hear Will Ferrell, you hear Christopher Walken uh, and others. Uh, the more cowbell uh, sketch. Um, uh, many of these, three of these, three of the 20 came from Chappelle's show. Two came from Inside uh, Amy Schumer. Uh, three came from Key and Peele. Uh, a bunch of them, I think maybe five or six of them came from Saturday Night Live. And then there were sprinklings of uh, other things like Portlandia, The Coral Show. So I'll go to the comedy person here first. Um, first of all, Julie, I, w- I want to go around the table to see if anybody has a clear favorite, one that they feel is the defining of the 20. Were you, could you pick oh, wow. one? Yeah. Um, I would say I I don't have one favorite sketch, but I think if you're not on board with Kean Peel as the comedy voice of the of the decade, then you're you're a little off. Like we always look to SNL and people put out a think piece every single week about what they're doing. Um, but Key and Peele's voice and style has found its way into cinema, obviously directly, but um, they're the ones really tackling social issues, 
in issues of injustice and things like that in a way that is feels very current. So all the key and peel ones, Continental Breakfast, Obama's ang- Anger Translator, and Substitute Teacher are the ones in the list. Um, those are sketches I've loved for years and have used um, to teach comedy thinking and comedy writing um, in the past. So I was very excited to see them on here. I also love um, Inside Amy Schumer's 12 Angry Men sketch, which got a lot of press at the time, and I was excited to revisit it. Yeah, that's um, a very grainy-looking send-up of the movie 12 Angry Men, and it has, uh, as Chris was observing before we went on the air, a lot of Class A actors in there, the kinds of actors who were, I mean, this is sort of modern-day equivalents of some of the character actors who who defined the original Henry Fonda movie. Um, I just I want to say just one thing. Well, actually, well, I'll just go around the table, and then we'll all discuss. So, um, Rich, how about you? Do, you? do you have a clear favorite among this group? Well, yeah, it's going to be um, uh, Obama's angry translator, without a doubt, <laughs> yes. as the individual favorite. Mm-hmm. Favorite, but as the as a collective statement, without having any one piece be um, rise to the surface. To me, it's the collection of what uh, um, Dave uh, Chappelle was doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he was he was he had this opportunity in this window about twenty years ago to provoke a conversation uh, in a way that he's still trying to do and it's not as effective because the conversation is here now. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, But 20 years ago, Chappelle, yes. All right. Uh, How about you, Chris? Uh, I would have to agree. Uh, Chappelle, I absolutely love Keegan and Peele. Um, The More Cowbell skit was phenomenal. Um, Little known fact that that gentleman was not actually, it was a completely fictitious character. He was never existed. Blue Oyster Cult had over 20 members. That was not one of them. Uh, so it was a joke. The Bruce Dickinson thing, people often get confused with Iron Maiden. It was not in reference to him. He also <laughs> did not produce that song. He was producer of that album. Uh-huh. Um, so that was funny. But Chappelle, very quickly, um, I absolutely agree with. I think without Chappelle, you may not have had Keegan and Peel, who I absolutely love. But what wasn't mentioned in this list that surprised me was in the third season they were airing after Chappelle left and you had Charlie Murphy and Darnell Williams uh, doing the sketches. They ran a pixie sketch or, or um, where it's basically just at each race and depicting them, you know, as their scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they had a Q&A that they aired with the audience and how does it make you feel? And um, I thought that was one of the more important uh, parts of Chappelle's show, but I can't name you a skit off Chappelle I didn't like. All right. So for me, the head and shoulders piece really, although I agree that we focus too much on Saturday Night Live. Uh, I agree with what Julia was saying. Still, for me, the head and shoulders piece is the Black Jeopardy MAGA uh, <laughs> sketch with Tom Hanks because I really thought uh, that was, first of all, very, very funny, very, very smart. And it really got at something that I hadn't really thought about, which I mean, so the premise of the sketch for those people who don't remember it or never saw it was that that Tom Hanks is a guest on this Black Jeopardy thing, which is a regular thing on Saturday Night Live. Uh, and uh, as he responded to the questions, it turned and he was like this guy in a MAGA, MAGA hat. He was obviously this white Trump supporter in this otherwise black show. But it, it turned out that he had his – his feelings of disenfranchisement and being screwed over by the system and not trusting conventional sources of authority were very similar, <laughs> uncannily similar in some ways to the way the, uh, the black contestants and the black host, played by Keenan Thompson, thought about it. And, 
you know, in the middle of that election season, I just really hadn't thought about that that way. And I mean, it's not strictly true, but there was a kind of truth to it that that spilled over. And Julia, one thing I think we see in a lot of these sketches is that, you know, whether it's it's Tina Fey saying as Sarah Palin, I could see Russia from my house, mm-hmm. you know, which she which Sarah Palin never said, but everybody started to think that she'd actually said those words. There are all these things that have sort of come to be little ways of understanding our reality. It's one of the things comedy can do. Yeah. So, I mean, if I was to interpret this list a different way and say which sketch really changed our culture, Mm -hmm. not just the comedy world, but that sketch with Sarah Palin and Hillary Clinton played by Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, I mean, there are people do not cannot separate that from reality anymore. I mean, it, we could only hope that SNL would be this effective now, but like, that was a nail in Sarah Palin's coffin. That was quoted so much and they kind of fused identities where she truly became one joke played by one person, Tina Fey, and Tina Fey like had a lot of control over how everyone thought of this uh, one person. Um so yeah, there there is a big impact there. And I think that all of these sketches, all the best ones on this list, and let me just say, whenever there's a list, it's easy to be like, this thing's missing, this thing's missing. But this list does have a lot of great sketches in it that raise big questions and just kind of let them hang. That's what was good about that Black Jeopardy sketch. That's what's good about some of Amy Schumer's best stuff is the um, – another one we haven't mentioned yet is the uh, – I, I can't say the title of the sketch, but it's the last Fornic- day. Fornicatable day. <laughs> last fornicatable <laughs> day. So uh, famous actresses are celebrating when they're like no longer sexy. Um to the public and the industry and stuff. So that they just kind of – good sketches present a truth and a situation and let you kind of chew on it and then the culture takes it from there. All right. Let's hear a little bit of that last fornicatable day, uh, less sexually viable a day sketch, whatever <laughs> you want to call it. You'll hear the voices of Amy Schumer, Patricia Arquette, Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Tina Fey. Someone's birthday, or oh, <laughs> kind of the opposite. We're celebrating Julia's last couple days. Yes, salute. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm sorry. Did you say Julia's last couple day? Mm-hmm. What is that? Mm. In every actress's life, the media decides when you finally reach the point where you're not believably fuckable anymore. Well, I mean, how do you know? Who tells you? Uh, well, nobody, nobody really overtly tells you, but there right. are signs. You like, you know yeah. how um, Sally Field was Tom Hanks's love interest in Punchline, and then like 20 minutes later, she was his mom in Forrest Gump. Or you might get offered a rom com with Jack Nicholson, where you're competing with another woman to f- him. Mm. Or you go to a movie set, you go to wardrobe, mm-hmm. and the only thing they have for you to wear are long sweaters, like cover you up, head to toe kind of thing. Where like the poster for your movie is just like a picture of the kitchen. Yeah, <laughs> with these very uplifting and yet vague mm-hmm. titles like whatever it takes or she means well, <laughs> that kind of thing, right? Although that's probably the la- least funny part of the, the skit, but it's also the only part that we can run because almost everything else. But it was <laughs> odd, too, because, you know, Rich, at one point we were discussing whether to talk about as a topic Dennis Quaid marrying a much, 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 much younger woman. And before we knew about this list, I actually threw that sketch at you guys because mm-hmm. I think about it all the time. You know, because part of the one of the jokes in the sketch is that Bruce Willis is not marrying somebody 39, younger, 39 years younger the way Dennis Quaid is. He's marrying a baby lamb. Um, and I mean, there is a lot of truth in the comedy there. There's, yeah, this, 
I think that the best comedy is is rooted in that. It's rooted in something that's truthful, something that's uh, that's topical. Um, well, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna reverse that. Um, the best comedy now seems to be rooted in that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, when I was thinking of the sketches that uh, that I remember best, right, mm-hmm. uh, they have none of that in it whatsoever. Right. I mean, I grew up in with comedy that was just you know just completely absurdist stuff. Um, and, you know, and that, frankly, none of it really aged well, right? You know, because I look back at it and I'm like, well, this isn't culturally relevant anymore. This doesn't challenge anything. So I'm just looking at the sight gags for whether they, they're well executed. Um, this, uh, this idea of, of topical content, you know, um, and how something like this clip that we were just listening to overlays with, you know, what was it, Dennis Quaid at Sixty five marrying a somebody thirty nine years. Ago. Yeah, that's you know that's that's something to discuss. Not because of what Dennis Quaid is doing, you know, but because of what um, the judgment that's passed on others, mm-hmm. uh, on women who might be I- in that position, and you know, and um, and it's interesting how many folks would you know say what Dennis, where Dennis Quaid is is disgusting or what have you, which you know doesn't affect me one way or the other. I mean, do your thing, man. Um, uh, but can the place of comedy uh, around these topical issues is a thing that we've discussed a lot on this show. And, you know, where's the line and are we crossing it? And is there a line and do we have to honor it um, is another big question. And, and I'm still on the fence of that. I mean, I watched some of these Chappelle clips. I'm like, oh, my God, dude, this is really crossing the line. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and there's – yeah, I, I mean I want to come back to that because I, I do think that's the thing worth talking about. But I think also – so Mike Nichols uh, in some documentary I saw about him, he said this thing. He goes, there's only two reasons to do a joke because it's funny and because it's you. And what, by you, he meant because it's everybody that says something that you know everybody can identify. And you know, Chris, to Rich's point, so there's two Keegan-Michael Key – sketches in this list that are driven by him. One of them, I think, fits into Rich's category of timeless. One of them is just this substitute teacher who can't pronounce anybody's name right. correctly. Uh, and and it's I find it just – I watched it more than once today. Um, it is funny just because of his level of commitment to it. Yes. You know, he is just – going off the rails because yeah. he's because he thinks people are saying their own names wrong. The other one is the Obama um, anger translator, right. which, you know, is obviously pegged to a specific thing. But I think it's also identifiably, I've got to sort of get you into your podcast mode, part of the human condition too. We all kind of need anger translators. I mean, <laughs> like we all need some version of Luther uh, and don't have it. Couldn't agree more. Um, I absolutely love the angry president skit. I was so happy when he actually got to do that with the real Obama. (laughs) That was incredible. Um, The substitute teacher, perfect. Like you said, that commitment, um, the kind of role reversal that you see there, um, you know, something that Keegan Peel did well and and Peel is doing with his horror movies. but absolutely, when it comes to the human condition, like um, you know, it was just being said by Rich about Chappelle's show and crossing lines and, and human nature. And I'm an equal opportunity offender. I will throw myself under the bus just as quickly as anyone else. Um, but I think that it is exceptionally important to find an outlet wherever it may be, whether it is comedy or music or literature or whatnot, um, in which 
maybe we don't feel right expressing that, but, you know, we can laugh at it and in a way purge that out of ourselves. Right. So I, I want to talk a little bit about how well some of even this material ages. Um, mm-hmm. Julia, I mean, the Chappelle stuff is meant to kick trip wires and make us uncomfortable. There's this this racial ethnic draft thing where where the ethnicities are and races are dra- drafting racially or ethnically ambiguous people like Tiger Woods into their midst and a whole bunch of stereotypes are being called up and and we are meant to squirm a little bit by some of the things that commentators are, are saying. But there was also one, I think from Mad TV, about a character named Mrs. Swan, yes. Mrs. Swan, who has kind of an ambiguous sounding accent and is kind of clueless and a little bit rude and is holding up a Starbucks line. And I was looking at that. I was wondering if you could even do that in some contexts anyway in 2019. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And, you know, I've thought about this recently. Uh, Mrs. Swan reminded me that it's crossed my mind several times that people have stopped saying the – Pat sketch from SNL is like the funniest thing ever where Mm -hmm. you don't know um, if this character is male or female. Um, and that should rightly die, right? We we all know now like, whoa, the entire premise, there is no – we got to pull the rug out and let's never speak of it again. Um, and things it's, I think it's okay for things to have their moment and go, go away. You know, there, a lot of these sketches, I think it's really important for the public to understand are not meant to last forever, Mm. particularly SNL. Like it's actually really not great to compare that to key and peel because one of those is written and produced in a week, and one of them is written and produced over the course of like a year. So they're serving different purposes. Um, they're quick, quick meals, quick takes, hot takes, and if they miss and they die, it's okay, and we don't have to worry about it. But maybe we shouldn't keep like bringing it back into the culture and the conversation. And it's one thing that I think is great about this list is that a lot of people taking the mantle of their identity and like going at their mm-hmm. own thing from their own like very strong perspective. Um, and Amy Schumer's gotten a lot of flack rightfully for things she's done when she stepped out of her lane. But when she's in her lane, yeah. there is nobody who can like really skewer some of these like you're calling me ugly, like I should wear more makeup kind of thing. So I think she's brilliant with that. And a lot of the the stuff that we love about these are people really grappling with identity. Most of these are identity-based sketches. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we see sketches that are like making fun of a character that's someone else's identity or an invented identity, those those are the ones that don't feel right anymore because we're all like considering ourselves and where we fit into society together. I have a slightly different take on the on the Miss Swan thing. I mean, sure. I, I first of all, I completely concur, with, agree with what you're concur. What is this a boardroom? No, you concur. I, <laughs> I completely agree with what you're saying. Um, and uh, the the one thing that I did note about the the Miss Swan thing is, you know, I'd read the the blurb that was associated with that, and you know, talking about you know this racial depiction and, you know, and and the awkwardness of that and how, you know, we might not go down this road any longer. And then I watched the piece, right? And the one thing that I took away from it is that the person that was in complete control in that situation, uh, in that Starbucks, was this character. Mm-hmm. You know, that what what I was seeing is everybody else's intolerance. You know, so to me, it rose to to the surface 
you know, these, this degree of intolerance for other people. And it didn't seem like it was a sketch that was about making fun of this person. It seemed like it was a sketch about, you know, how the response to her. Yeah, in, in to that vein, uh, and I did uh, send you a very late a link to it, but so uh, Andrea Martin famously had a character on SCV, SCTV named Perini Scleroso, who similarly had this kind of unplaceable accent. But most of the sketches she did as that character were, in fact, the same kind of thing about how she would push somebody else to their breaking point, and their breaking point came rather easily. And, and so I don't know if that redeems it. Although, Chris, so recently uh, Eddie Murphy was on uh, Comedians Getting Cars with Jerry Seinfeld, yeah. and they were having a conversation about this, and Seinfeld said, you know, comedians think everything is okay to make fun of. Right. We think everything is okay to make yeah. fun of. If you left it up to us, that's what we would do. Yeah. The, the whole question is what will ultimately the audience, what will the networks, what will everybody else deal with? But as far as comedians are concerned, nothing's off the table. No, not at all. It's funny you mentioned that too because I just recently had dinner with Joel Hodgson who is the creator of mm-hmm. Mr. Science Theater 3000 and – was in an episode of uh, that show getting uh, coffee, whatever it is, with Seinfeld. And they're very close, longtime friends. And he said something very similar to that nature. And comedians uh, in general are often very self-deprecating individuals, and it just translates into their comedy. Um, And, you know, going back to Julia's statement where um, certain pieces are not meant to last, I agree with that to a certain extent. but also, like, I look back at, for example, In Living Color. Uh, what was it? The I made a note. I used to love this. And I rewatched it and I still laugh. The Adventures of Handyman, mm-hmm. a handicapped superhero. That would not fly today. But to me, it is still funny. I think we have become an overly sensitized um, and not that that's necessarily wrong um, society. Uh, but, you know, like even people say The Office, which is not a sketch comedy, wouldn't be um, like celebrated as it was today when it first aired. So I think, you know, that we have to take that into consideration as well, that, you know, society has changed and I'm all for that. I At heart, I am very PC. However, when it comes to comedy, how can you be a true fan of like real raw comedy? All Look right. back at so Richard Pryor. I want to and- argue. I want to argue. <laughs> yeah. And I'll keep it quick. Yeah. So I think that – so I'm much more in the improv and sketch world, which yeah. is – changing, you know, we're, we, improv and sketch people, we're becoming a lot of the comedy conversation. And that point of view is like lives very wholly in stand-up where it's like one person where it's mm-hmm. them alone in a big room. But these sketch, we're putting a lot of thought and talk into like the actors here, but this is a room full of writers. This is a community having a conversation that then becomes a piece of art. And I think comedians have to accept that they are there to have some kind of interaction with an audience. And there's a lot of value in going beyond um, just like, here's my thing and you take it or leave it. Like, it's a conversation. Comedy yeah. should be a conversation and it should evolve. Um, and I, I love some of the things that you're saying, but I think it is becoming an outdated assumption that all comedians will make fun of anything. I think that conversation is changing. It's very interesting. It's very heated. <laughs> um, but it's it's really great to think, like, what is comedy really? Like, how can we go deeper and what use does it have for us as we reckon with our identity and our social world. 
All right, we, we have to go to a break right here. We're going to go out with one of the uh, – well, yeah, you're reminding me of the fact you were on the, the most recent Chappelle special show, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I didn't like it. You didn't like it and I did. So I we could have it. another heated conversation. <laughs> anyway, we're going to go out. We're going to go out with uh, Lazy Sunday, which is one of the other 20 uh, nominated uh, indispensable uh, life-changing sketch things. This is by the, yeah, Adam Samberg and uh, Lonely Island, I think they're called. And so here it is. Lazy Sunday, wake up in the late afternoon. Call Parnell just to see how he's doing. Hello, what up, Parn? Yo, Sandberg, what's cracking? You thinking what I'm thinking? Party up, man, it's happening. Uh-huh. Reverse my hunger pains, I stick it like duct tape. Just hit up Magnolia and back on some cupcakes. Yo, Dr. Bakery's got all about Bob Frosty. I love those cupcakes like McAdams loves Jocelyn. Jocelyn. And we're back. And so let me mention a couple of things. First of all, uh, CT Improv from Wentz, Julia Pistel, uh, here in the studio today. Hales is going to welcome next Saturday, I assume we're talking November 2nd. Yes. November 2nd, mm-hmm. Kevin McDonald from Kids in the Hall uh, doing Kevin McDonald's Cheaters in Love, a rock opera. And then on November 13th, we are going to have our 10th anniversary party for the Colin McEnroe show, which we've had like 82 meetings about. It feels like our fifth anniversary meeting. We had one <laughs> meeting, but I don't know. Anyway, it's going to be uh, at Black Eyed Sally's in Hartford. You need to get tickets. Uh, they are available. We're going to put up a link eventually, but right now, if you can remember this, it's cmsanniversaryparty.eventbrite.com. That's cmsanniversaryparty.eventbrite.com. Or just wait until we put the link up, at which point it'll be sold out. Anyway, uh, that's November 13th at Black Eyed Sally's. All right. So we were going to talk about uh, this whole idea that Howard Fishman brought up in The New Yorker uh, about whether bookstores should charge admission as a way of making themselves more viable. But we used up too much time talking about comedy. So maybe I'll mention it a little bit more during the endorsements. But it's time to talk about The Institute. Uh, it is uh, Stephen King's latest novel. Uh, here in the studio to talk about it, uh, Chris Grosso, uh, Rich Holland, and the aforementioned Julia Pistel. Uh, the Institute was published on September 10th. Uh, it's sort of, it's, I guess, not entirely clear how many novels Stephen King has actually written, but 61 seems like an acceptable number. It's his 13th novel this decade. He is 72 years old. Um, the television rights have already been secured by David Kelly and Jack uh, Bender. Uh, and for a limited series, uh, it is about uh, a group of children, young, young people, children and preteens and teens who are locked up in some strange facility for reasons that they initially don't entirely understand and come to understand that their circumstances are very, very perilous. Um, that's like a very poor job of describing it, but that's, that's – we just have to start somewhere. Dun, dun, so, dun. <laughs> so Julia, you're kind of a – with 15 Stephen King novels under your belt <laughs> – on one, in one way, you've only scratched the surface if there yeah. really are 61 of them. On the other hand, you're kind of a Stephen King scholar. I do not consider myself a super fan and I think people might hear that number and be like, whoa. But if you actually think about, you know, Carrie, The Shining, um, all all of his big ones, mm-hmm. you know, he's written so many books that are in the conversation even if it's – you've only experienced them through the movie. Um, but I read this and I was like – Yup, this is him doing his thing. Um, it's kind of a classic Stephen King in that it's a bunch of kids. There, He's always all about like some violent bullies, even when they're unnecessary to the plot. Um, there's power struggles. And of course, there's this like um, telekinetic 
telepathic uh, element to this book, which is not a big spoiler. It comes out very quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's horror, but my experience of this book was this is like horror by the way of YA. This felt so young adult literature to me, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's almost like if you put X-Men and Ender's Game and Hunger Games and there's even like a Harry Potter feel um, at times into a pot and like stir them up, add one Stephen King element of telekinesis and boom, you got this book. Yeah, except Hogwarts (laughs) didn't have cigarette machines. (laughs) Um, So so yeah, and we should say this is a little bit, I mean, if people have a preconceived idea of what a Stephen King novel is, although he violates that assumption about him again and again with books mm-hmm. like Hearts of Atlantis and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. um, this is one where there aren't any scary, horrible people or creatures who have unusual powers or supernatural abilities. Any such things all reside actually with the good guys, mm-hmm. uh, which is – I mean the bad guys don't have anything like that. So, uh, so Rich, um, I think you described this <laughs> – in your email, yeah, Carolyn Payne like description of the this was the hardest thing you've ever had to do for the news. <laughs> yeah, it really was. It was painful. Um, it was uh, it was initially painful, right? So at the time that I sent that email, um, I was prepared to come in here and be like scathing. It's like first of all, books. What's going on with that? <laughs> wow, Rick. We'll never do it again. I promise. <laughs> and secondly, Stephen King. You know, it's it's it just wasn't working for me initially, right? So it was the the way the book was set up and the way it was written at the beginning. It just felt sort of like uh, X Men go to to uh, X Men bring the cast of Mayberry to Maine, um, <laughs> and and it just wasn't working. Everything was just sort of Sheriff Bufordy, and um, and it wasn't pulling together at all. And then. Uh, as he started getting into less of the setup of characters and more into what I think that uh, that he does masterfully, uh, which is create these really complicated plots and uh, and tells a story well, like unfolds a story well. Um, then it got interesting. Then I got hooked into it. Um, and I completely agree with you on that point, Julie, about the X-Men thing. That, that's really what it felt like, right? And it even, you know, it had that sort of, you know, can we champion for the super children uh, who are being, uh, you know, who have all these forces coming, uh, um, attacking them. I also, and I, and I know that, you know, that Chris and I disagree with this a bit. Um, I saw a big uh, stab uh, at this current administration in this book. And in reading uh, King's statements about it, uh, you know, his statement was that uh, that all this stuff happened after he was, you know, pretty far along in the book. And I don't know, man, he, he gives the dates and, and they don't really align to, uh, to it not having influenced what he was putting in this book. Um, there, there is a sense that, uh, that the government is sanctioning these removal of children and um, and uh, and there's a number of mentions of this administration. I think that there are five or six mentions of the administration throughout this book in really kind of uh, un- that sound like Stephen King's tweets about the administration, basically. <laughs> Not um, that there's anything wrong with it. No, no, no. I'm, I'm a big fan of bashing the administration, but let's call it what it is. All right. All right. No, so Chris, how about you? How did it land for you? I loved it. Um, absolutely loved it. I have not read much of King's latest work. Um, I've started a few books and they just haven't really resonated. 
I read this coming off of just finishing four of David Wong's books, the John Dies at the End trilogy and then the Futuristic Violence and Fancy Suits, which a lot of people probably aren't familiar with, but they are absolutely absurd and insane books that are brilliant, in my opinion. So even though this was a bit of a lighter read for me, I also still found it very disturbing, very visceral. Uh, It was captivating and I felt very beautifully written. Um, Full transparency, I have been in institutions myself. Of course, nothing like is depicted in this. And you do have some psychokinetic powers, too. I mean, (laughs) I thought we weren't going to mention that, but fine. Uh, But no, like just being in an institute in and of itself, which I've been, like I said a few times, can be very traumatizing. So that was part of my visceral uh, reaction as reading it. Um, One thing that I loved was that See, I'm not familiar with YA literature. I've never read it. I know what you know, Rich and Julie have mentioned. But for me, I did make a quick note that it, you know, it did feel like classic king to me. It featured the youth relationships, like from the body and it. It had children with special powers from The Shining and Firestarter, the mysterious evil from The Stand, Tommy Knockers, Christine, and then you have these gnarly villains from like Mis- Misery and Storm of the Century. And those to me are essential king elements. And that's part of what I loved. And I have more notes, but you know, we'll... Well, well and that's interesting if I could jump in yeah. here because one thing I've gone around with, um, with other friends is did... Stephen King actually, like, did he influence the YA genre himself? Like, Mm -hmm. did he start a lot of these current, like, trends and feels in that kind of fiction? Um, so I just th- I think that's that's really interesting. But it felt young to me in a way because it's, like, it doesn't have the, like, crazy sex elements of his, like, earlier work. It's just, like, kids being kids, like, banding together adorably, uh, you know, Stranger Things, Boys on Bikes, like that kind of vibe. Right. Uh, they have, it's almost kind of a Nancy Drew. Yeah. They, they have little sexual stirrings <laughs> towards each other. They feel something going on. They barely understand what it is. What am I feeling right now? I just want to quickly just uh, uh, do a little context for myself. Um, I got hired a few years ago to interview Stephen King on stage. I didn't know the people who hired me. I hadn't really read very much Stephen King at that point. And then I did give myself kind of a crash course. I read. Did you do eleven twenty two sixty three? Did yeah. you do that one? Okay, that that was a big lift. Um, so, I think that Stephen King is popular because he is us too. Like he's he. You know, Margaret Atwood and Jonathan Franzen are way better writers <laughs> than Stephen King, but he is an, he's a master narrator, and he's us. He's so close to us to to the sort of regular people. You know, I, I think in some ways the fact that he isn't this supreme stylist is one of his one of the reasons that he catches hold of us. And so I was a little bit like Rich. I was having a little bit of trouble with the clunkiness of the prose and the this and the that. But I also, my significant other was away and I was starting to get a cold. And so I just sat down and I read it in like two and a half days. Yeah. And it's a really long book. <laughs> and and he's, he does pull you right along. I think, Rich, even you had that experience yeah, yeah. that ultimately you just give up. Okay, okay, Stephen, you win. You got me. I'm in for the whole ride. I want to see how this comes out. He writes with joy. That's, I think that, when I first started reading his books, I was like, I'm noticing adverbs. What? Ew. Uh, and then I'm like, "What? whatever. This is a man like having fun with his creation and clearly writing fast and writing mm. like a lot. And it's – these are – they do feel like speed reads, but it's a 600-page speed read. So you get to have that joyful feeling for a long time. And that's really special. I really enjoy that. So I do want to address that a little bit too, though. Um, uh, yeah, I found that some of the joy, the joy in place of 
as a substitute for craft in, mm-hmm. you know, for, for precision and let alone accuracy in parts of this book was distracting to me. You know, uh, there, some of the language just kicked in everything that I learned in, in middle school not to do. Um, and it was – and I understood through reading this why you shouldn't do it, you know, because <laughs> it wasn't contributing, you know. And there was this one piece. It's, it's a pet peeve of mine, right, um, is hold on to your storyline and, and be real in the moment. There's this point in which uh, early on in which uh, one of these characters had taken an Uber someplace and then they talked about – he talks about – when he got to the destination that the first thing that he did was pay his Uber driver. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had a similar problem. That throws uh, me. Later in the book, there's uh, the guy who's the head of security at the highly defended, you know, high-tech, uh, quasi-government black ops institute uh, does not know what the term HVAC means, which mm-hmm. sort of struck me as pretty unlikely for somebody with his set of responsibilities. <laughs> and, and on a facing page, they totally – King totally screwed up and made more clunky and more wordy Mike Tyson's famous quote, everybody has a plan until they get hit. But – and I want to come back to Julia on this for a second because I want to talk about editing. But I also think, uh, Chris, not to pitch and hole you as the spirituality guy, but there's a way in which I think one, reason, one way that King hooks us is we really do have, I think almost in a, in a Kantian way, this – most of us, this real problem with injustice and with wrongness, with oh, bullies, absolutely. with unfairness. Yes. So there's a point in this book where you think everything here is so wrong and so evil and so dark. I, I will not leave my seat here with this book until this gets fixed. <laughs> and that's one of the things I think he's really good at. And, and I agree. And, and a big part of that passion and, uh, you know, the reason I feel that way is I, aside from, you know, being an author myself, I spend a lot of time working with youth ages 13 to 18 in uh, residential mental health and healing facilities. And I know the pain and struggle that they're going through. And that is horrific. Like I said, I've gone through it myself and it is horrific. And there was a quote that I think you know, segues nicely here that I read in the New York Times that I brought um, addressing this novel. And I'll just read it very quickly. It was an article that was titled, The Institute Might Be Stephen King's Scariest Novel Yet. It was published last month by Laura Miller. And she wrote, how does a human being become someone who can regard the abuse of children as first a necessary evil and then finally as a matter of routine? That's a question with undeniable political relevance at this moment. King has made his contempt for the current president, his administration, his policies abundantly clear on Twitter and in other public statements. The Institute, which takes more than one overt dig at Trump, ruminates on the people who carry out the administration's policies on the ground, the sort of working folk he usually champions for. Mm. So, you know, I thought that was very relevant both to that question of how how do these people that work at the Institute come to a place where they're okay in their lives with what's happening to these children? And yes, it segues then into the political aspect, which we've kind of, you know, talked about. But I, I thought that was such a great point that she brought up. And that's also a part that I loved about this book is King spent as much time developing the characters, the quote-unquote bad guys, and even the smaller characters to me as he did the good guys. He he, he focused on everyone and, and shared both sides. 
I, I do want to bring this thing up with you, Julia, because we were talking about it as we were heading in here. And I have a little bit of experience with this myself as I used to be a published author before I turned into a hacker, whatever it is I, I am now. you're probably still published. Oh, well, I am still published. <laughs> but so one of the things I know is that e- editing isn't what it used to be. Uh, but, you know, I find myself looking at this thing and to Rich's point, you know, why isn't their editor going, well, no, you don't actually pay for Uber. No, a web browser and an internet provider are not the same thing. Uh, no, that guy would know what an HVAC system is. No, that's not the Mike, right, Mike Tyson quote. Is it just because King is so big, nobody can tell him, change your, change your script, <laughs> Stephen? I mean, I don't, I don't know what really happened here. But I think it's probably a combination of his fame and everyone just trusting, you know, people are going to love it. But also, we do not value editors in our newspapers, mm-hmm. in the publishing industry. I mean, Colin, you probably know better than any of us here, like how much those roles have been cut down and hidden and, you know, just completely destroyed. So if we want, you know, truth in our world, if we want to feel like the things we're reading are representing any kind of like care and reality, um, we should always, you know, push for things to be edited better. Like these things sound nitpicky, but they, they're they important. They, they add up over time. And actually to bounce off Chris here, like one of the things that I found most compelling about this book um, was this kind of plot twist that this institute had been around so long that, you know, they're not really keeping it that perfect anymore, that the key to getting out or escaping or whatever is the entropy that has taken over and the laziness <laughs> when people aren't paying attention to the fine details. And it is absolutely amazingly poetic that King himself isn't really paying attention to these mm-hmm. details. Like there's there's dust on this book. There's things that could have been fixed up just to make it feel that much more yeah. Um, perfect. Yeah. But that's, okay. Yeah, good. Last uh, comment. Yeah, I was going to say, that, that seems like a contract that he wants to make with us though, mm-hmm. um, that he wants to make that, you know, I'm going to give you this thing and uh, I'm going to give you the capacity to suspend disbelief but you're going to have to go on the journey with me. Yes. You're going to have to not criticize it. You're going to have to let it go. Yeah. Well, and he's written the best book on writing. Yes. Stephen King's On Writing yeah. is the book about writing, and it it's all about that. It's all about, like, audience and believability and, mm-hmm. and have fun. And, like, we're, we consume and create art for a purpose, and that purpose is, like, emotional and joyful, and you, you should just go with it, and you should give it to your audience. That is a great book. It's basically a memoir disguised as a book about writing, but yeah. it's, like, both really. All right. So we have to stop there. Uh, But the book is The Institute by Stephen King. Uh, You can either read it or not read it. It won't really ultimately matter to Stephen King. He's going to be fine, I think. Um, (laughs) He's happy. Yes, right. Uh, (laughs) We'll be back with some recommendations after this. to say I didn't like the new Stephen King novel. I took it with me to read on vacation. I was staying at this huge, otherwise deserted hotel that was snowed in up in the Colorado Rockies. It just didn't hold my attention. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants with help from me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Scatman Crothers. On Monday, we'll be back with the scramble. And now... Back to Colin. Okay, let me just do a pre-endorsement recommendation, which is because this 
I think we all really were interested in this piece by Howard Fishman that's in The New Yorker about whether or not bookstores as a matter of survival uh, should charge uh, an admission in something that's been tried in other countries. You know, you pay $5 to walk in the bookstore and then that's subtracted from the price of your ultimate purchase. And um, So read it. If you want to have like your own little nose – in your house or something, you and one or two other people read it and then argue about it because uh, it's a really good uh, thing to discuss. We just didn't have time for it today. Uh, all right. So let's get down to real recommendations. Julia, you go first. Sure. So my recommendation, I just listened to the audiobook of Circe by Meredith Miller, which oh, yeah. was an amazing book. But my real recommendation is the woman who read this audiobook was unbelievable. And I'm going to go find everything she's ever read. Her name was Perdita Weeks. And I hate when audiobooks are like overperformed. And she didn't do that. It, it was perfect. It was a character voice, but also really like honored the prose. And it was great. Go, everybody go find Perdita Weeks. Right on. Yeah. Um, or you can start with Cersei and just kind of spread out from there too. Yeah, totally. Uh, all right. Uh, Rich, what have you got for us? I have two really uh, – Intimate things to to recommend. Um, one of them is by this guy Stephen King, <laughs> and uh, I didn't read the book. I saw the movie. It's called Misery. Uh, go see it again if you haven't seen it because it's amazing uh, what you could what he could do in a confined space. Um, the other is uh, is a new author. She was uh, initially a um, uh, in intellectual papers translator, uh, and she wrote her first novel called I'm From Nowhere. Her name is Lindsay Lerman, uh, I'm From Nowhere. Uh, it's a, it's a kind of complicated but still um, intimate global tale of, um, of the sudden death of a husband and this sort of parallel mourning of that death and the dying of the planet and uh, this kind of collective reclamation of self and finding agency. It's about love in a beautiful, hostile world. Worth mm. a read. All right. Say it again. Cool. The title? I am, I'm From Nowhere right. by Lindsay Lerman. All right. Because uh, otherwise people email me. and say, what was the book? <laughs> what did he say? Uh, Chris Grosso, what have you got for okay, us? Okay. I've got a couple. I'll make them quick. One. We got a little bit of time. You don't have all right. Those. So one, Gangstar, one of the ultimate hip-hop duos of all time, has a new album coming out next Friday. Um, I've heard two songs from it. I've already pre-ordered it. Even though it's DJ Premier and, and Guru who passed away um, from cancer in 2010, DJ Premier had stuff recorded that he had never used. I will tell you that these two songs brought me right back to the golden era, mid-90s, hip-hop at its finest. He had Guru's Ashes, his urn, um, in his studio while he did the record. Features uh, verses from Q-Tip, Talib Kweli, J. Cole, J. Ru the Damage, or more. I, I am so excited on that. That's right. next Friday. Uh, number two, really quick, Midsummer, which came out in July. Uh, for perfect season for it. For those who didn't see it, it's now just recently available streaming. I loved that movie, very Wicker Man-esque, which is one of my favorite horror movies. Also, 171-minute director's cut comes out October 28th, as if the original wasn't long enough. Number three, uh, Drone Metal God's Son O have a new album out today called uh, Pyroclast, which was recorded by the legendary Steve Albini, worked with Nirvana and tons of amazing people. Love it. And lastly, uh, Ani DeFranco is coming to College Street in New Haven. And uh, my fiance got her tickets long ago, and it's almost sold out. If you're planning on going, go. I can't tell you how many times I've seen her. She's never let me down since the 90s. And lastly, happy birthday <laughs> to Halloween, my all-time favorite movie. It turns 41 this very day. Yay! 
And we share the same year. We're both 41. So happy birthday, Halloween. Aww. All right. So if I should say that I'm going to have to watch Midsummer next week because we are going to do uh, a show on Halloween that will include a meditation uh, on folk horror, which is the kind of genre yes. that includes The Wicker Man in Midsummer and, and other stuff like that. So uh, we are going to talk about that. You'll look around the crowd at Ani DeFranco. You'll probably see Kion Wolf. I don't think she misses too many Ani DeFranco uh, shows uh, either. So, yeah, uh, for some recommendations. First of all, I was trying to think of a comedy spe- sketch that I would recommend. Um, and, and I'm going to recommend a uh, uh, sketch from the old early HBO series, series Mr. Show. Uh, it's called – I think it's called Pre-Taped Talk Show. Uh, and I don't want to say too much about it, but it's about a guy who does a call-in – pre-taped call-in show. That must be what it's called. Pre-ta- he does a pre-taped call-in show so that people are calling in about the wrong time. I, I, won't, I won't even say it. Just Google it. Go find that sketch. It's really, really funny. Uh, and uh, I was trying to think of some um, – other sort of things like if you're not going to read the Stephen King book, what to read. If you haven't yet discovered Tana French, you, you know you should read a few Tana French novels. Uh, she's not a horror writer; she's a detective writer, but she's so terrific. And I happen to know Stephen King is like a really, really big Tana French fan. He's also a, a, um, a fan of an author I discovered recently that I had mentioned on the show once or twice before, named Adrian McKinty, who's uh, born in Belfast, also like was a big deal in Ireland, and now lives uh, in America. Had a big hit this summer that Stephen King loved called The Chain. I don't recommend The Chain. I read it all in one day, but it's not that great. Go back and read some of his early books. Uh, particularly Dead I Well May Be, which is his first one ever. Uh, It's just a terrific piece of kind of crime writing set mainly, uh, well, in New York City and Mexico. includes a prison escape that I think might have inspired one of the scenes in the Institute by Stephen King. So uh, that's all very well and good. And I won't recommend anything else uh, other than that uh, I recommend the society and company of all of our wonderful panelists here today. Chris Grasso, uh, Julia Pistel, Rich Holland, and yes, a quick reminder, Kevin McDonald from New Kids in the Hall is going to be at CT Improv a week from tomorrow doing Kevin McDonald's Cheaters in Love, a rock opera. Thanks to everybody who helped out today. We'll be back on Monday with The Scramble. Betsy Kaplan and I are debating topics right now. Tune in for that one, too.